Welcome to Highland Church Audio Sermons. Today, August 19th, 2018, we begin our series titled, Knowing Truth, The Letters of John. Today's sermon, God in the Flesh, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. Enjoy! In a world of disagreements, large and small... I don't believe that you exist. Go think whatever you want. Go ahead. How can a good and powerful God allow innocent people suffer unspeakable tragedies? But then there's all these questions, you know, about ethics and moral issues as well. And I would say, well, they're crazy for not testing what they think they believe. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. It's as real as what you see. And, and I begin with the assumption that God is love. And love is love is love is love. I think that the orthodox, historic Christian tradition is this vast, diverse conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. Open your Bibles up to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Now, like I said, we're going to do a little bit of intro stuff here and kind of look at the book and the theme and all that stuff too before we jump into the first four verses. You know, the men that God used to write Scripture came from all sorts of different backgrounds. For example, Moses was raised in the lap of luxury. He was raised in Pharaoh's household. You know, he was a prince of Egypt. He had everything there around him. Nehemiah, on the other hand, was a slave in Babylon. Matthew was a tax collector, which basically meant that everybody hated him. Okay? I mean, he was totally despised. In fact, he was considered untrustworthy by everybody. The Romans and the Jews, everybody considered him untrustworthy. Luke, however, though, was a doctor, and so he was probably respected by just about every very educated and you know, people really were drawn to him. The writers were also characterized differently. For example, Paul is called the apostle of faith. Peter is called the apostle of hope. John became the apostle of love, which to be honest, the first time I read that, it actually sounded a little bit wimpy like he was the apostle of the Hallmark Channel. You know, but what you realize is that's just really not the truth. He was actually the opposite. I mean, John was actually considered a hothead. He was the youngest of the apostles that Jesus called. He was, uh, in fact, he was a guy that in Mark chapter three that Jesus looked at him and his brother James and called them the sons of thunder because they kept getting themselves into trouble. They would, they would brash and they'd speak out loudly and they took chances and they did all those sort of things. John is the guy that in in Luke chapter 9, after they traveled through and they came into a Samaritan village, and the village wasn't really friendly with them, that he stops and he looks at Jesus and says, Lord, do you want me to command that fire would come down from heaven and destroy them? This guy's not like a meek and mild guy. This guy talks his mom into going in to Jesus and asking if if John and his brother could have the two top spots in the kingdom when Jesus comes into his glory. Could one sit on my right and one on my left? It's pretty aggressive. It fits with being a Galilean. Josephus, Jewish historian, called the Galileans a fierce people. The amazing thing is, though, Jesus totally changed him. I mean, he goes from being a son of thunder to the apostle whom Jesus loved. You know what that tells me? That tells me that Jesus does not just come and give me salvation, he changes me. At my core. Who I am, how I relate to other people, changes. 
Now, 1 John here is one of five letters that were written by John. Of course, you get the Gospel of John. And then you got the letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which we're going to do all do in these series. And then you got the Revelation. The only person that wrote more scripture here is Paul. Now, these were also maybe the last three letters written in the scriptures. Makes them pretty important. These would be letters that were written after John's return from exile on the island of Patmos. Now, if you know the story, he got exiled there, and while he was there, God gave him this vision, and the vision was the Revelation, the book of Revelation. But after, afterwards, after he got off the island of Patmos, history tells us that John retired, and instead of going back to, to Judah or any part of Israel, he goes to Asia Minor because he goes there to be a father figure to the churches that the Apostle Paul had started. Now, how do we know he was the author? Well, there's like three basic reasons. The first one is that the language and the ideas are basically the same as the Gospel of John. He talks about light, and he talks about love, and he talks about the Word of God. Plus, the author claims to be an eyewitness of Jesus. There wouldn't have been a lot of eyewitnesses left at this point. But then the third reason why is because church history confirms completely that this was John. All the church fathers, and by, when I say church fathers, that would have been those that followed the apostles. Okay, those, the, all the church fathers, they all agreed that John was the author here. Irenaeus, Clement, Tertullian, Augustine, Origen, Jerome, all those guys. Now, why didn't he just come out and sign this? Why didn't he just put his name on it someplace? Well, it's interesting because this letter was clearly written near the end of his life. And he's grown more humble over a period of time. He's come a long way from being the manipulator that was trying to get the best seat, you know, right next to Jesus when he would come into the kingdom or being called a son of thunder. At this point, he doesn't need anybody to recognize him. In fact, Jerome, as he wrote about John's humility, tells the story that when he got, you know, too old, that they would literally carry him from church to church and he would go there and preach. And when he got to the point where he couldn't preach any longer because, you know, he was in his 90s at this point and he really couldn't do that, they would carry him in and he would just whisper to the people, you know, little children love one another. This is an amazing guy. His audience at this point would have been the churches, or all the churches basically in Asia Minor, not just one church, and so this was considered a general epistle. These would have all been churches that Paul had started. But see, after Paul's death, these churches had a leadership vacuum that they needed something. They needed someone to come in and help them because they were being attacked by this pseudo-Christian group called the Gnostics. Now John is gonna write here for a couple of different reasons. But if I had to point to one reason, I would say it's because the heretics and the false teachers that were within the church community, and they weren't on the outside, this would have been a group of people that would literally have been coming into the church, sort of sneaking in among the fellowship, and they would stop, and when they would have Bible studies, they would begin to question, and then they would throw different thoughts and ideas out, and they, they would change things. They came across like they were smarter than everybody else. So they were spreading a heresy, and so John writes to combat this heresy. In fact, let me show you a couple of examples 
of how this even works. Look at chapter one here, 1 John chapter one, and look at verse six. Because what John's gonna do here is, in the first 19 verses, six times he's gonna show us how he's gonna challenge their heretical teaching. Look what he says here in verse six. If we say, pretty important little line there. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, there were some people that were coming into their Bible studies that were totally walking in darkness, doing anything they want to, but they were saying, oh, but I'm fine. Spiritually, I'm in. Verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. You, do you notice those three little words there over and over again? Now, he's going to change that slightly in chapter 2. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Verse nine, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So John here is out to correct these people who are confusing people within the church, teaching falseness, and basically what they're doing is they're creating insecurity about people's faith. One of the great things that will happen through the gospel of John is you should get an assurance of your faith. Now, look what he says here. Let's start with verse one, and we'll see four things here that John's gonna teach us here. Let me read through these verses here. Verse one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things that our joy be made complete. Now, the first thing he's gonna tell us here in verse one is who Jesus is. Now, he starts off in a very unusual way because he starts off with the word that. Now, I can't think of a time that I can ever really remember reading something as significant as this that started off with a pronoun that. Normally, we'd start off with the or some other thing out there, but he starts off with that, and every time you see a pronoun, it indicates someone, a person, or a thing. Well, who's the person? The word of life at the end of the the passage or excuse me, at the end of verse one. That which was from the beginning, and then he ends with the word of life. That's one of John's favorite descriptions of Jesus. Now, the English translation of that word there in the Greek actually comes out to the word logos. Now, many of you probably know logos. You know, probably you've used that, that uh, program on your computer, and, and you know, it's really a great program, and, and you, you've used it for a lot of different things. But the word itself, the word logos itself, means full expression or thought. What John's trying to do here, he's trying to be really clear about who the logos, who the word is. Let me show you something. Turn back to his gospel. 
Turn back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Okay? And we'll use this as an example of how we use these words. John chapter 1. And we'll look at the first three verses and then we'll look at verse 14. Verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the word, the full expression or thought. In the beginning was the full expression. And the word, or the full expression, was with God. And the word, or you know, the, the full expression, was God. He was in the beginning, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14. And the word, the full expression, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he wants to be clear here from the very beginning here that the Word is God and that Jesus is the Word. He is the Logos. He is the full expression of God and that he's personal. He has come in the flesh for us. His point is Jesus is God in the flesh. Not created. Not developed. Not evolved. You know, if you begin to look around at Scripture, because Scripture helps us interpret Scripture, you'll see that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, again, John is the writer, he tells us that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he's eternal. He has no beginning, no end, And that limits the possibilities here to only one, that he's God. God come in the flesh. In fact, if you go back here to 1 John again and you go to the end of verse one there, he talks about the word of life. That word life is the word zoos. It means already existed. So he's basically telling us that Jesus is the total and the full expression of God who has always existed. Now, why would he start like that? Why would he begin this whole thing like that? The Gnostics. That heretical group that has infiltrated the church. You see, the Gnostics came along and and Gnosticism basically was a bit of mysticism and philosophy and religion all sort of rolled together. It was very heady. And the Gnostics taught two basic truths. One, was that salvation came through the secret mystical knowledge. You needed this knowledge. And that's where their, their name even came from. The word Gnostic, or Gnosko, means the knowing ones. And they taught that you don't need faith. You need knowledge. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, that should hit you right off the bat because the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that it is impossible to please God without faith. Impossible. We don't come to to have a relationship with God with our head. We don't come and just go, well, I'm going to add facts up, and if the facts, you know, if it's a math equation and just works for me, then I'll do that. No. We come by faith, trusting, believing in Him. But they're moving away from it, you know, creating a problem within the church. All you need is knowledge. I mean, if you really look at their argument, what you begin to realize is very new age sounding. I mean, this sounds like something that that might be out there even today. 
Now the second thing that they were believing was is that all matter, like our bodies, you know, it's made up of mass here, all matter is evil. But spirit, spirit is good. Spirit is a good thing. Well, since the body then is bad, Jesus could not actually have had a body. So what they taught was that Jesus only appeared to have a body. In fact, they taught that he would actually hover just barely above the ground. They they got to the point where they even took it a little bit further. They got to the place where they said, well, you know what? what? What he did was Jesus was merely a human and then at, the, at his baptism, the spirit came on him. And then right before his death on the cross, the spirit left him again. Biblically, that doesn't hold any water. Go back over to the left. Go to Hebrews chapter one. Hebrews chapter one. The writer of Hebrews wants again to be clear, exactly clear about who Jesus is and what he has done. And he writes these words in Hebrews chapter one, starting in verse one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That term there that says, after making purifications for sins, links that back to the temple sacrifices. Because in those days, you had sacrifices that took place where you would come and you would bring an animal and that animal would be killed and then that blood would be spread over something to to represent their blood covering up your sins. It was a kofar for your sins. What he's saying is when Jesus came, Jesus came and he making purification for sins, in other words, he washed your sins away. So that would go completely against what the Gnostics would say. In fact, let me give you another one. Go over to the left of Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. Paul will write the same thing in verses five through eight. He says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did uh, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christianity was completely based on this true fact that Jesus, he was God in the flesh, come down to earth to die. That would be exactly against what the Gnostics were teaching. So right off the bat, What John is trying to do is declare there's a big difference between the teaching here. Big difference. Now, the second thing he's gonna tell us here in verses one and two is that we have the ability to know him. Again, look at verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. 
So John now is stressing how amazing it is that God himself would come to us. And he gets very sensory about this. We heard him. Imagine that. John would come in and be able to say to these people, not like me, I'm reading from something here, but John could personally actually say, I heard him. I heard his words. I saw him. I watched him. I watched what he did. I watched this person. They, they were there, and this, they're, they're, they were lame, and he touched them, and it was healed. I was there. I felt the wounds on him. He was made manifest to us. You know, a manifest means he was there in the flesh. That's the best news you could ever possibly hear. Now think about the audience he's writing this to. Because at this point, again, Asia Minor is loaded with people that are Greek influenced. And the Greeks had this thought that, you know, the gods are above everything else. They don't care about you. They don't care how you think. You know, they just sort of, you know, little pawns down there on earth. They move things around any way they want to. But they had no care or no concern for any human being. That was their thought. And yet he writes here that Jesus' entrance into humanity was for a purpose. For us, Jesus' coming makes it possible for us to know him. He came in the flesh, not just to die for my sins, but he came in the flesh so I could relate to him. If you're back in 1 John, go over to the, to the left to Hebrews chapter four. Pretty close there. Hebrews chapter four. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says here but the beauty of his coming. What did it mean to us? Hebrews 4 tells us in verse 14, he says, since then we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why does Jesus get you so well? Because he walked here. He gets it. He gets us. And so here in verse Verse two, he's telling us how important this relationship is, that, you know, that it means everything to us, that we could know him. Now, the truth is, not everybody is gonna believe. I get that completely. But you have to understand that we were created in his image. And then he comes to earth in our image. That sets us apart from every other creature there is. I mean, there is no animal that communicates the way that we do. There is no other creature that can write a book or sing a song. There is no other creature that can sit down and share deep thoughts, wounds, and history. No creature can express and feel love from a distance. God made us unique with the ability to know him so that by faith, his son would come and we could have fellowship with him. So he's God in the flesh, and he's knowable. But the, here's the third thing you see in verse three is there was a purpose for his coming. Look what he says, verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He has come in the flesh 
He's knowable, and that knowledge gives us the ability to have fellowship with him if you and I believe. In fact, he'll even sort of define our mission here that you and I are to proclaim that truth. We're to proclaim that truth. Do you realize that when you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, that God births you into a brand new family, and one of the things he tells us to do is, your job is tell the family story about me sending my son to die. Verse 3 tells us that because we have fellowship with him, we can have fellowship with each other. And it's the most amazing thing if you really think about it. I mean, I was trying to picture this this past week in my mind. This vertical relationship I have with God makes it possible to have this relationship, the horizontal relationship. And it's completely true if you just think about it for a second. Why in the world would this particular group of people gather together? Because we have something that just draws us together. There's something supernatural that happens in a church. God pulls people together and he makes them a family from every kind of background. He just does something special. And it's all dependent upon that vertical fellowship that creates the horizontal one. Now, there is a result of faith as well. The fourth thing here, look at verse four. He says, and we are writing these things that our joy may be made complete. So he says the result of true faith or trust in Christ is joy. Now, let me tell you what joy isn't. Joy is not happiness. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is too dependent on outward circumstances. I mean, you know, it comes and it goes. I mean, we can be happy. You get up in the morning and, you know, the, the, you, you get out in your car, you start driving along and you hit every green light. We're pretty happy, right? We're simple. Or, you know, you get in a, in a certain lane and somebody cuts you off and they slow you down and they're like, we're pretty unhappy at that moment over something that shouldn't make us unhappy, but, but it does. I mean, we can be up and down with happiness so easily. That's not what he's talking about. Joy here is a genuine satisfaction of knowing Jesus Christ loves us personally. And it's a source of strength in our lives. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, tells us this, that the joy of the Lord is my strength. Psalm 16, verse 11 tells us that we can only experience that joy in Christ. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. What's he talking about? Fullness of joy. Well, let me see if I can change it, you know, make it understandable here. Joy is the assurance, the love and the assurance that removes fear. It brings inner peace, inner satisfaction. And the only way your joy can be full is the absolute assurance of your salvation. Let me say that one more time. The only way your joy can be full is the absolute assurance of your salvation. Do you have that? He's dealing with a group of people here who don't. They're being told they don't have the right information. 
Don't worry about, you know, trying to keep all these rules or don't, don't worry about, you know, doing this or that. You just need to get the right knowledge, man. And they're confused. Like we can get confused so easily. Augustine, one of the church fathers, says, our heart is restless until it rests in you, Lord. Well, that happens when we place our trust fully in Jesus Christ. Do you understand what he's saying? You can, if you can only find joy in Jesus Christ, we are incomplete without him. So it doesn't matter if you've been to church all of your life. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, there is something that's joyous enough to give you complete security that you're missing out on. He came that our joy might be made complete. That term, you know, made complete here is, it means to be permanently filled. I love that picture. It's done. It's permanent. John begins to write here. And he tells these people that Jesus has come. He is God. He has come in the flesh. He came that we could know him. He came to create a fellowship between us and him and us and each other. And he came to give us a fullness of joy that comes because we have the assurance of our salvation. Do you have that? If he's going to start with a group of people that were struggling with this, this is a great place for us to start. Do we have that? Are we sure? Do we know? Have we trusted in him? Because if we have Christ in our lives, 1 John 5 tells us, then we have the life. It's as simple as that. Would you pray with me? Appreciate if just for a second you would um, just close your eyes just for a second. There's nothing uniquely spiritual about you doing that, but it does cause you to focus in on you. One of the worst things that could possibly happen in your life is you would come to church and week by week you would still have doubts about your faith. You know what? Let's remove the doubts. Allow the joy. Allow that joy to be made complete inside of you. The assurance of his love and his care can be yours. If you've never taken a moment and stopped and prayed to ask Christ to come into your life and take complete control of you, you could do that right now, right where you're at. I'm going to give you that chance. I'm going to pray and I'll pray out loud and I'd ask you just to pray with me silently right where you're at. But if you want to be sure, if you, you don't know, but you want to know, you pray with me. Okay? Dear God, would you please forgive me? Would you please come and live inside of me? Would you take control of me, God? I invite you to change me, to rule my life, to give me a heart for you and for others. And I'm trusting you to take me as your own into your kingdom 
and to live for you in this kingdom right now. Let me ask you a question. Nobody's looking, but just so that I could pray. If you prayed that prayer, would you just slip your hand up and then put it back down? Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to ask you to do one thing for me at the very end. There'll be a group of people that will be down here because they see it as their ministry to pray for people in the body. They would love to pray with you to solidify that in your, in your hearts that you made that decision. God, as we begin this study on 1 John, we want to be sure, God, of who you are and why you came and what that means to us. We don't want to be lost by the arguments of the world. We want to believe fully and completely, Lord, that you sent your son to come to have a relationship with us and that we have it by faith, Lord. Lord, I pray that those that prayed that prayer, God, would you make it real? Would you give them the assurance, God, that you absolutely love them? Make their joy complete, Lord, in Jesus' name. Go out knowing that God himself came in the flesh. He came that you might know him. He came that you could have fellowship with him and with each other, and that you would have assurance of that love. God bless you all.